thought for the next few weeks we would take a look at some of the names of Jesus in the Scripture. And not only what they mean, but how they can apply to us and how we can actually be changed by the personality traits of Jesus as described by His names. And so we're going to start tonight in Matthew chapter 2. Our verse will be verse 23. Let's talk to the Lord. Lord, we come before You in that precious name of Jesus. That name that is the most familiar to us as the person God made flesh, our Savior. Lord, Peter nailed it right on the head when he said, to us who believe, He is precious. Jesus, You are so precious to us. Lord, open up our eyes in the next several weeks, including tonight, that we might see as a diamond the different facets of Your character. And that we might fall in love more and more to the extent that we would follow You in that particular trait since we know You are calling us to be conformed into the image of Your Son, not just to learn about Him. Grant, Lord, that all of our hearts would be open, uh, a fresh slate that You could write upon Your love notes. Make us receptive, tender-hearted. In Jesus' name, Amen. You notice that in the Scripture there's much reference to the name of the Lord. We've been reading in Genesis Sunday mornings how that Abram, it doesn't say called upon the Lord, he called upon the name of the Lord. There are Scriptures that say the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. There's many references in the Scripture about how excellent is Thy name, O Lord, above all the earth. Even when we get to the New Testament, in fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus teaches prayer, He says when you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Now, what does He mean by that? Does He mean the um, this is some kind of a spiritual or, or religious phrase to say that spices up her prayer to make it sound good. Oh, hallowed be thy name. Or is that a real key issue in our communication with God? The name of the Lord. Hallowed be thy name. It is more than a title. It's more than just finding out, okay, what is God's name? Oh, Jesus? Okay. Because in the Scripture, the name means all that a person is. When Abram called upon the name of the Lord, it meant he was calling upon God in all of his fullness, all of his character traits, all that he was in his personality. The name involves the reputation of a person, the personality. And so when Jesus taught us to pray, one of the key issues in our prayer life is that we say, Our Father, I'm addressing you as my Father, you're in heaven. And I want to make sure that your reputation, your character is not flawed by my own life, nor by my request that I'm about to offer. My main concern is you, Lord, and your kingdom, and your glory, and your name being honored above all the earth. As I looked up in the Scripture, in fact, I Xeroxed it off tonight, 
There are over 700 names for Jesus Christ alone in the Scripture. And each one, I'm just going to read a, a smidgen of them to you. Just going to let you know the titles. It's like taking a diamond and turning it around and looking at a facet of it. Getting a light that bounces off and catches your eye and you think, oh, I've never seen that before. And when you listen to them all together, you get such a well-rounded character of Jesus. And I think there are 700 names of Jesus. And don't worry, this will not be a 700-part series, believe me. In the year 2045, we may finish it. We're going to just cover a few of them, but there are so many names because His character is so inexhaustible. It's so amazing. He is the totality of all that we need. He's the great I Am. Here's some of the names of Jesus Christ. and I'm just going to read a few of them. The Advocate or the Lawyer. The Alpha and the Omega. The Amen. The Apostle of our Confession. The Author and the Finisher of our Faith. The Beloved of God. The Beloved Son. The Branch. The Bread of Life. The Bridegroom. One of my favorite. The Bright and the Morning Star. The chief cornerstone out of Psalms and Mark 12. The chief shepherd. Christ the King. The consolation of Israel. The counselor. The day spring. Morning star. Deliverer. The desire of all nations. The diadem. The door of the sheepfold. The faithful and true witness. The firstborn from among the dead. The friend of tax collectors and sinners. God blessed forever. God our Savior. God with us. Good Master. The Great Shepherd. The Head of the Body, the Church. The Heir of all things. Our Great High Priest. The Holy Servant, Jesus. The Husband. The I Am. The Image of God. Emmanuel, the judge of the living and the dead, the king of glory, the king of kings, the king of the Jews, the Lamb of God, life, light, lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord, the man of sorrows, the mediator, the Messiah, the mighty one, the morning star, the Nazarene, the only begotten of the Father. In 1 Corinthians, He's known as our Passover. Ephesians, our peace. In Luke, He's called the physician. Peter says He is the precious cornerstone. He's called the prince of life. Rabboni, my master. Redeemer, the resurrection and the life. The rock, the root of David. The scepter out of Israel, the seed of David, the son of David, the son of God, the son of man, the son of Mary, the son of the father, the son of the highest, the star out of Jacob, the way, wonderful, the word of God and the word of life. Isn't that beautiful? All the names of Jesus Christ are some of them. In Exodus chapter 34, God introduces himself and he talks about his name. 
And as he's having a conversation with Moses, I'll read it to you. It says, the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And this is what, this is what he proclaimed. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord. The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And so you see his name is the very, the character of his person, his reputation. Not just a title. Um, if you see, and I don't think you'll find one out in our parking lot, but maybe you will. Maybe you'll find a car with a stamp on it that says Rolls Royce. If you do, it's Chet's. When you see that name stamped on a car or on an engine, you get an image, a reputation. You, that name is known for precision, quality, high dollar. I was driving last night around 11 o'clock by Knott's Berry Farm in Southern California and looked over and there's this huge tower. It just has a big Knott's on it in, in lights. As I looked over at this tower, all these fireworks are going off. And I thought, that's a perfect picture of Knott's Berry Farm. It says it all in that one picture, Knott's, all these fireworks. Just seeing the name speaks of fun. You know, relaxing, having a great time. And so the name, according to the scripture, the name of God embodies all that he is. And we've seen some of these names of Jesus, that diamond as we turn. Warren Wiersbe says that every name he wears is a blessing that he shares. And the reason I've decided to take us through a, a short walk through some of the names of Jesus is because Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, learn of me. And I found that as we study the different character traits of Jesus, that it makes us thirst for more of that character in ourselves because the purpose of God is to conform us into the image of His Son. Paul says in Romans chapter 8. God just doesn't say, here's a neat book, read it. Go to a church building, sit down and read it. You're going to have a lot of fun doing it. But study and learn and know about who I am so that I can change you to be like my son, Jesus Christ. That's God's eternal purpose for all of us. He's shaping us. He's taking us like a potter, takes a little bit of clay and he squeezes. And it hurts when he does it when we go through trials and he conforms us into the image of his son. And that's what I, I, I love, that scripture in Ephesians that says we are his workmanship. And as you, most of you know, the Greek word is poema. He's our work, or we are his work of art. God says, I want to take all of you and make you an art gallery for the world. I want to display you before the world so that when they look at the artwork, they'll know what kind of an artist is behind it. When you go into an art gallery and you see modern art, confusing, you think the person who painted this is a confusing person. When you see symmetry and beauty and color and life in a painting, it speaks of the originator of the work. And so God wants to stamp his name on us. We're called Christians, people who follow Christ, so that when they look at the art gallery, they think, that's what Jesus is like. That's the character of God. They have obviously studied his character. They are learning about him and they are following him. 
And so week by week, we will turn different facets of this diamond and see Jesus Christ in His glory. I am thinking of a scripture before we jump right into our text in Hebrews 1. God, who at different times and in different ways spoke in the past to our fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by His own dear Son, whom He has made the heir of all things. God used Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, David, gave them messages, they wrote it down. God communicated. God wanted the final mark of His communication to be distinct and beautiful, and so He sent Jesus. And so we come to know God through Jesus. And as we walk in that relationship with God, God holds Jesus in front of us and says, okay, keep your eyes on Him. Obey Me, love Him, and I'm going to change you into His image. The image of the firstborn, the only begotten of God. In Matthew chapter 2, in verse 19 it says, When Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. And he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. The guy was obviously a creep, didn't want to die, and didn't want to get his family in jeopardy. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now here we have a prophecy and a name of Jesus. He will be called a Nazarene. That is his identification. And it becomes one of the most common names of Jesus through the Scripture. They know him as Jesus of Nazareth. Or Jesus the Nazarene. That's his hometown. In the olden days, they didn't have last names. They didn't have John Smith. They had Jesus of Nazareth or John of Albuquerque. They didn't have last names actually till about the 1100s when people saw that there's just too many people in a given area and if you're in a crowd and you go, John, 40 people are going to look your way. And so we have to complicate the names. We have to add another distinguishing name. In the olden times, they could do it by a place. Jesus of Nazareth. There's only one Jesus probably of Nazareth. There were other Jesuses that were around the land of Israel, but only one Jesus of Nazareth. Or they would distinguish people by their father by saying Jesus bar Joseph, which meant in Hebrew Jesus son of Joseph. In the medieval times, I did a little study on this this afternoon, looked it up in an encyclopedia. As Population centers began to grow in medieval times. Names started changing and you needed to add more words to them to distinguish people. They started matching people with different things around them in their environment. For instance, they would take a man's first name and match it with his occupation. And so you'd have John Cook. This is not a joke, by the way. This is how they did it. Or with his location, John Overhill. John Brook, because he lived down by the river. Or his characteristics of his person, when you look at him, Joe Short. 
Pete Longfellow. Or by their dad's name. If he was John's son, he was John Johnson. Or Don Johnson. Although Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was never called Jesus the Bethlehemite, but Jesus the Nazarene. Because, although he was born there, as you know from this passage, Joseph moved him and raised him along with Mary in Nazareth. So wherever he went, they attached his name to his hometown, the place he spent 30 years of his life in. He was Jesus of Nazareth. Um, if you look again at verse 23, it says, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. According to Matthew, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, if you have been an astute student of the Scripture, you've come across that passage as I have before and thought, hmm, there's a problem. I've never found that prophecy in the Old Testament. If you look in the New Testament... Nazareth is mentioned 31 times. Problem. You look in the Old Testament prophets, there's not even one mention of it. There's not one scripture that says, He shall be called a Nazarene. And there's not even one mention in the Bible of the town of Nazareth. And so you think, Matthew, how do you figure, man? Now you're Jewish and your audience is Jewish. So what was on your mind, Matthew, as you were jotting down this little... Scripture, supposedly inspired by the Holy Spirit, that we all believe, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Here's a couple suggestions. And let's just follow the reasoning through and then we'll apply it once we find out what we think it really is. There are some people that have said, well, what he's referring to here is a Nazarite. Back in number six, it describes a certain Jewish person who would take an oath he would be separated unto God. He would be holy. He wouldn't touch dead bodies. He wouldn't have the fruit of the vine. He would not grow his. Uh, he would not shave his hair or his beard. He'd just kind of be this uh, natural Yule Gibbons hippie who was devoted totally to the Lord. And there were certain ritualistic ceremonies he had to go through to prove that he was separated to God. That's what it means here when he says he's a Nazarene. And there's a scripture that people have actually used to. Um, uh, come up with this. I'm going to read it to you in Judges 13, verse 5. Concerning Samson, people have seen a double fulfillment of prophecy where it says, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. Now, Jesus was totally separated to the Lord, but he was not a Nazarite. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. He was dressed in camel's hair and he was this wild, long-haired fanatic in the desert preaching repentance. He let his hair grow long. He let his beard grow long. A Nazarite was uh, not um, supposed to have any or a lot of social contact. He wasn't to go to major feasts and celebrations. But Jesus did. There's no indication that Jesus trimmed his hair a certain way or let it grow long uh, like a Nazarite would. Nazarites were to have no fruit of the vine. We know that Jesus did have the fruit of the vine. Nazarites were not supposed to touch dead bodies. Jesus did. However, when he touched them, they were alive again. 
That's the only difference. So Jesus was separated, holy and undefiled, as the Apostle says, but he was not a Nazarite. And so that scripture doesn't fit. That explanation is no good. But the Holy Spirit put that here for a purpose. Then others will say that there is a reference to the branch in the Old Testament. Listen to this scripture out of Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. A branch. The word branch in Hebrew is the word netzer. Nazareth in Hebrew is natzer et, which comes from the same root word meaning branch. So some people have seen this connection that when it speaks about Jesus being the netzer, the branch, and he came from Nazareth, that it's a prophecy out of Isaiah that he would be the branch and thus the Nazarene. The only problem with that is that Matthew, look at it again, says, it will be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, plural. Isaiah is the only one to use the word netzer, the branch. Although Jeremiah uses the word branch, he doesn't use the word netzer, a whole different word. However, Matthew says the prophets said, and he seems to imply that it was kind of common knowledge. Oh, you know, just like the prophets used to say, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, there's another possibility, and this, I believe, is the really only true explanation of it. We need to remember what kind of a city Nazareth was. Remember how we've talked about the reputation that Nazareth had? It was this city 55 miles north of Jerusalem in the foothills of Galilee. Now, it's a beautiful city as far as view is concerned today, but it's really not much of a town. In fact, even on tours, we just pass through it. There's nothing to see. Nazareth, at the time of Jesus, was known as sort of the other side of the tracks or the other side of town. The town we don't talk too much about. Nothing really happens in Nazareth. It's the place where there's a lot of Gentiles. There's a place where people have a crude accent. And people down in Jerusalem used to hear people from Galilee, especially Nazareth people talk, and they thought, these people are uncool. They got the worst hick accent. You can hardly understand them. They have these Gentile admixtures in their customs. And so it was a common term of disgust to say, that guy's a Nazarene. I told you the story in California of the husband and wife that were having the fight on the beach and he'd call her a horrible cuss word and she'd call him a cuss word back and they were yelling and a crowd started getting around and she started getting real frustrated and she finally said, you tourist. That was the ultimate chop for a local Californian at the beach to be called a tourist. And he became livid. He just got upset and he turned around and just ran away, walked away. You tourist. It was a chop. He shall be called a Nazarene was an indication that the prophets spoke that Jesus Christ would be rejected. At the time of Jesus, the word Nazarene meant that a person comes from a disgusting place. He's crude. He's uncouth. And we reject him socially. 
He shall be called a Nazarene, speaking of the rejection of Jesus Christ. Listen to Isaiah's description. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. David, in speaking of Jesus, said, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You remember the story when Philip, who met the Lord, was saved, and he comes to get his brother Nathaniel, and he says, Come and see the one that all the prophets spoke about. Jesus of Nazareth. You remember Nathaniel's reply? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, he wasn't just being flippant and being, um, uh, you know, chopping or cutting at that point. Because remember, Jesus, in describing this person, said he is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. It was a shock to him. You're kidding. Somebody from Nazareth could fulfill the prophecies that were spoken about the Messiah? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, it would sort of be like um, there are certain cities that are known and they have reputations. Uh, Hollywood and New York have a reputation for the arts, among other things. San Francisco has its reputations. And so if somebody says... So-and-so from New York City, the famous actor. You'd say, oh, that makes sense. But if somebody says, so-and-so, the famous actor from Truth or Consequences, you think, what? Now, if you are from Truth or Consequences, please don't stone me after the service for saying that. But, you know, certain places have a reputation. I was out in California the last couple of days. I showed my driver's license to the Alamo car rental place, and there was a girl who was standing there, and she says, oh, New Mexico. She goes, I'm from truth or consequences. Don't tell anybody here. Can anything good come out of truth or consequences? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He was the Nazarene despised and rejected by man. Now, let's, let's apply this. For Jesus to be called the Nazarene meant that he condescended himself as God and took a name of identification, a name that identified him with the rejected group of people. He's not called Jesus of Rome, the famous city of law-giving. Jesus of Athens, the famous city of philosophy. Jesus of Jerusalem, the famous religious center for the Jews. Jesus of New York City. It's Jesus of Nazareth. A podunk, run-down little city that had a horrible reputation of disgust. Jesus identified himself with rejected people, poor people, isolated people, people who were shut out from the rest of the society, from the upper echelon, the people on the other side of the tracks. Jesus says, I will identify with you, and one of my calling cards will be here. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene, or he shall be called the Nazarene. 
His whole life was characterized by this kind of sacrifice, this kind of identification. For a minute, refresh your memory with me by turning to Philippians chapter 2 and looking at, from the heavenly perspective, the life of Jesus as he left the throne room of the Father and came to earth. Philippians 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not on his own for his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Now, why should we do that? Here's his explanation. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, which is a Greek word called kenosis, which literally means he poured his life out like water in a pitcher to the very last drop. He expended himself. He was in the form of God. Having the prerogatives of deity, he laid his robes aside, left them on the throne and became a human being, identified himself with sinful man, for it says made himself of no reputation or pouring himself out, taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Now that's the life of Jesus summed up from the heavenly perspective. He had the power, the prerogatives of deity. He said, Father, I will gladly... Surrender my position of being here in the throne room with you and I will invade humanity by becoming a baby. Being born in Bethlehem, living in Nazareth. I'll be called a Nazarene. Jesus wasn't born in Rome in a huge hospital with trumpets going off and the news media saying the Messiah was born today in Rome. Film at 11. There were shepherds who were the down-and-outers of society. He was born in a podunk little town in Judea, and he lived his life, 30 years of it, in an obscure, rough neighborhood of Nazareth, where Jesus watched the Gentile caravans going from Egypt to Mesopotamia probably every day. Rough neighborhood. But he emptied himself, and it says that he became a servant. Have you ever thought, from the perspective of heaven, that this was the ultimate cross-cultural experience anyone could ever experience. Talk about culture shock. You're in heaven. And now you're on earth. You've traveled, have had a, a little taste of that. You're used to American sinks, American bathrooms, flowing water, refrigerators with ice cubes in it, television, carpet, air conditioning or heating, shoes, and you go to a country, a third world country, like the Philippines or Thailand or India, China, Mexico, and it's a shock, isn't it? Especially not if you visit, but if you live there for a while. If you'd empty yourself of all your Americanisms 
and live in India, in Calcutta, in the slums of Mother Teresa, you would get a tiny, tiny, scratch-the-surface impression of what it must have been like for Jesus, the shock of being equal with God and becoming a servant, obedience unto death on a cross. But that characterized the life of Jesus. Why? Because He wanted to identify with us. Jesus being identified with Nazareth means that He can reach out and identify with anyone. If Jesus was identifying with the upper echelon people of Jerusalem or the Tanoan people of Rome, that's a very small segment. But when you go all the way down and say, I'm a Nazarene, I will identify myself with those who are rejected. Anybody can relate to you. Anybody can approach you. And so Jesus was called the Nazarene, being approachable. He was called in Mark's Gospel, the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And even the religious folks were kind of taken aback when they walked by Levi's house and the door was open. And amidst the beer bottles and poker chips, there's a party going on and Jesus is hanging out with them. And they placed their robes tight to their bodies and they said, how can this man eat with publicans and sinners? Jesus said, people who are well don't need a doctor, only people who are sick. These people are sick and I'm their doctor and I'm making a house call. And I'll identify with them because I love them. Yes, they are sinners. Yes, they are publicans. Yes, they are wretched. Yes, they are rejected by you. And I'm going to reach out to them and love them. Jesus, the friend of tax collectors and sinners. As I, as I read the Bible, I find something that sticks out to me over and over and is a, a point of conviction. That Jesus, that God from the beginning, and Jesus in human flesh always had a soft spot for the underdog, for the poor person, for the person less fortunate. Jesus didn't stand there and think, Get a job. You know, if you guys would get a job, you wouldn't have this problem. And Jesus didn't say, don't worry, I'll give a dollar to the fundraising people when they come by my door in Capernaum. He decided that it was important enough to be related with them. Even at the mockery of the religious community. God sent His people into captivity because they didn't have the same soft spot in their hearts that He had for the down-and-outers, the rejected, the poor. It said it's the common people that heard Jesus gladly. Paul said, Consider your calling, brethren, how that there's not many mighty, wise after the flesh, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world. God has chosen the weak. God chose the weak. And Jesus identified with the weak and identified with sinners. There's also another point for us that we ought to consider as we bring this to a close, and that is, since Jesus identified Himself with sinners, and since we're called to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, since he was willing to identify himself and open himself up to those who were rejected and poor and despised, following Jesus means following that personality trait of his, that facet of the diamond, to have the same concern. What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? Let this mind be in you, Paul said. It means to think like Jesus thinks. 
Well, what does Jesus think of sin? It's wrong and at all expenses, get rid of it. What does He think of salvation? With everything you have, present it. What does He think about the despised people? He'll hang out with them and love them. What does He think about the kingdom of God? Well, He seeks it first above everything else. His whole life was wrapped around obeying God, making God number one. So following Jesus, having the mind of Christ, means we have the same concerns. And I found very interesting as I looked through the book of Acts that the term Nazarene was a term for the early church. They were called the sect of the Nazarenes. Oh, these are the people that follow that despised and rejected character, Jesus. Later on, they were called Christians in Antioch, which also became a term of despair. But listen to what Hebrews 13 says. Let us then go to him outside of the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. I just want to leave all of us, including myself, because I've meditated on this today with a challenge. Who do we follow? We're following Jesus of Nazareth, the despised and the rejected one, or are we following Jesus, the guy who gives me a Cadillac and I'm always healthy and I'm always rich and I get what I want and I claim it by faith? Now, I believe on claiming the promises of God and standing on the promises of God, but it's interesting, all this talk I hear about claim the promises, I don't hear a whole lot of people saying this promise. Those that uh, live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I'm claiming that. Right now, I'm standing upon it's mine. They're out there claiming promises, but about that many of them. Everyone who lives godly is going to suffer persecution. Jesus said, unless you come after me, take up your cross and follow me. You're not worthy of me. Following Jesus involves hardship. Obeying is the hardest thing we can ever do. Obeying Jesus Christ is against natural impulse. It is against our base inherited nature from Adam. It takes a submitting ourselves to the will of God and saying, I don't want to do that. I don't want to reach out to those re rejected people by nature. But I'm filled with a love for them because I'm so in love with you, Jesus, that I see your heart for them. And my heart breaks just as yours does. I want to have your mind. I want to follow the Nazarene. I want to reach out to those people who need it. In fact, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Following Jesus involves that. You know, as I looked at the Beatitudes with you several months ago, we noticed that that is a beautiful picture of the Christian from the beginning stages to the, let's go this way, from the beginning stages to the mature stages. That he begins by being blessed. He's poor in spirit. He's humble before God. He recognizes that spiritually he's impoverished. He's humble before God, and because of that, he mourns over his sin. He then develops a hunger after righteousness and a thirst after righteousness. And in that humility and mourning and thirsting, he's filled and becomes powerful. He becomes merciful to people. He becomes a peacemaker to people. And because he's being so affected, blessed are those who are persecuted who suffer for righteousness' sake. And what did Paul the Apostle say? Oh, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection. And how many stop right there? 
Oh yes, the power of His resurrection power. The next phrase is what? That I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformed into His image. Jesus the Nazarene, despised and rejected by men. Christian follower of Jesus Christ, a Nazarene. Not deliberately being despised and rejected by men, but it's a natural consequence because we follow one who is. And our heart is naturally beating and breaking for those who are less fortunate, those who are downcast, those who people shove aside, because that's what following him is all about. John Wesley. You've heard about him. Some of you have read his things. It says in this little article I have, he was riding along a road one day when it dawned on him that the whole days, three whole days had passed in which he had suffered no persecution. Not a brick, an egg, or anything had been thrown at him for three days. Alarmed, he stopped his horse and he exclaimed, Can it be that I have sinned and am backslidden? Slipping from his horse, Wesley went down on his knees and began interceding with God to show him where, if any, there had been a fault. A rough fellow on the other side of the hedge, hearing the prayer, looked across and recognized the preacher. I'll fix that Methodist preacher, he said, picking up a brick and tossing it over at him. It missed its mark, fell harmlessly beside John, whereupon Wesley leaped to his feet, joyfully exclaimed, Thank God it's all right. I still have his presence. (laughs) Now, I didn't get bricks thrown at me today. But those who live godly will suffer some form of rejection. Some form of persecution. And those who live godly in Christ Jesus will have the mind of Christ, being willing to empty themselves. Being willing to lose reputation. Oh, that's so important. Well, I better not talk to that person. What if somebody sees me? What will they think? Imagine Jesus thinking that. She's a... She's a harlot. What if the Pharisees catch me? Well, they did catch him. And Simon thought to himself, if he really really was a prophet, he would know that this woman is a sinner. Whereupon Jesus, knowing the whole thing, turned to Simon. said, Simon, she's demonstrated her love for me. I've come for people such as this. John Calvert was a missionary to the Fiji Islands. As he was getting off the boat to go to the islands, the captain said, Don't go there. You'll get killed and everybody that's going with you will die. And Calvert turned around and he said, We died before we came. And following Jesus, raising the hand and committing ourselves to Him is more than frills and thrills. Although there's an excitement about being a Christian. We've heard it tonight. We've heard the excitement People have been led to the Lord. But I'll guarantee you, in the people that have been led to the Lord or you who have led other people by the Lord, you didn't do it without some kind of rejection and persecution. You decided, even though my family doesn't like it right now, someday it's going to pay off and I'm going to be a bright and shining witness. Because Jesus loves them. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, We think of all of the facets of the personality of Jesus Christ. 
And as we focus on that one, the rejected one, despised, esteemed not. Lord, our heart is challenged tonight by that kind of love, selfless, unconditional love. We read about it. It's tough, we admit, to practice. So, Lord, fill us with your Spirit. Bring no or allow no condemnation for many of us to enter our hearts only up, up a gentle, loving, firm push where you would say, follow me as the Nazarene. Lord, tonight there have been some who are, sit, who are sitting here and perhaps have never heard these things. They've heard the testimonies. Lord, they were neat. And truly, You are in our midst, Lord. Like the early church, these that we have heard from tonight have been with Jesus. And there's a vibrance in these lives. And there are some who have watched that vibrance, that life, and they are on the outside looking in. They don't have the life of your son. And some are following the religious system of Jesus of Nazareth, but not the person. Lord, would you right now touch hearts of people who are sitting perhaps in this room tonight who need to have you grab a hold of their hearts and love and say, come home to me. Let me save you. Be born again. Let me change your life. And really 